Well, we're going to be taking communion this morning after the message. And we should start now, well, we have hopefully through the singing to set our mind upon our God and who our God is and how do we know who he is. We know who he is through what he's done for us, through his own son, right? And so let's remember that now. As we go into this message, let's keep our mind on that as we go into communion, remembering that he sent his son for you. And what did he send his son to do? To die for your sins. There's no other way that any of us can be saved but through his shed blood for us. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to finish the chapter this morning. We're going to start from verse 19 and read to 24. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keeps his commandments dwells in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for what it means. I pray that you would fill us each one with the Holy Spirit this morning to set our minds on the things above and to understand your word. And we thank you for giving us your word to be a guide to us, to encourage us, and to fill us with joy. Thank you for this letter. Please speak to us this morning from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I'd like to make five points on assurance. So you're going to have to put on your theological thinking cap again. We've already had a few sermons where you had to do that. But we're going to have to do that again. I'd like to make five points about assurance. Number one, what is assurance? Assurance basically defined, and we're speaking about assurance in the Christian sense. Christian assurance is the conviction that you have that you are a Christian. That is, that you are saved, that you are forgiven, and that whenever the scripture says things about Christians, all those wonderful things the scripture talks about Christians, it's talking about you. That's what assurance is. It's that conviction you have that you are a Christian and that the scripture is talking about you when it says beloved. That's what assurance is. Now, back in the day, some old theologians used to say assurance was having an interest, a conviction that you had an interest in Christ. Remember we sang that this morning? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? What does that word interest mean? How many of you have sung that and not even known what interest means? Hopefully you've known what it means. It means to have a share in that, in that blood or be a partaker of that. And the song is marveling. That is an amazing thing that I should have a part in what Jesus did on that cross. Me, the one who pursued him to death. Amazing love. So assurance is also the conviction that you have an interest in Christ and what he did for you. And throughout history, the theologians have had a field day with this concept of assurance. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that it's actually a sin to have assurance. Okay? It is a sin for you to have assurance, to have a conviction that you are saved and that you have an interest in that blood. 
because that's the sin of presumption. How dare you presume that you're saved? You see, in the Roman Catholic Church, salvation is based upon you and your works. Now, it's, of course, they talk about Christ, but in order for you to make it to heaven, you have to make sure that you are doing the right things and that you don't fall away. And so it's presumptuous to say that you're saved. How, you know, how can you have such assurance that you're going to make it to heaven? How can you have such assurance that all the promises in the Bibles are yours? What if you sin tomorrow? What if you fall away tomorrow? And so it's a sin to be assured. Even today, that's, that's the doctrine. Now the reformers, and when I mean the reformers, I mean guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they absolutely opposed this idea and they said, you can absolutely have assurance. Definitely, you can have assurance and you can know that you're saved and you can know that the Bible's talking about you and you can have hope that you're going to make it to heaven because your salvation doesn't depend upon you, it doesn't. It depends upon Jesus Christ and upon God and simple faith in him. What is simple faith, they would say? Faith is simply trusting that God is going to do what he said he was going to do. And what does God say? Whoever believes in Christ has passed from death to life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Luther and Calvin would say, brothers and sisters, if you believe in Jesus, then you have eternal life. You know it. You can say it. Not because of you, but because of him. And the scriptures also say that those whom God has justified and those whom God has believed, God, who is the author of their faith, is also the finisher of their faith. God who began a good work in you will also finish that work in you. And so, and with many other scriptures, they say, you simply take God at his word and you trust in him, not in yourself, to see you to the end. And so you can have that assurance that you're saved. It's beautiful, isn't it? But along came a spider and sat down beside her. And uh, what happened was that because the reformers made an error, the, reformed, the, the Reformation, we can't have these naive views about it that was all good. Um, a lot of it was good. The reformers brought us back to the gospel. The reformers brought us back to believing that salvation was by grace, that you're saved through faith and not of yourself, and that it's about what Christ did on the cross. But one thing the reformers didn't do is they didn't reform everything that the Roman Catholic Church believed. And one thing that the Roman Catholic Church believed was that the church was the kingdom of God on the earth. Have you ever heard of infant baptism? Infant baptism comes from that idea that this church is actually a state that you're born into. It's a kingdom. And if you're born in Germany, then you're also born a Christian. You've heard of Christian nations? That's the concept. America, some people say, is a Christian nation. Does that mean if you're born an American, you're born a Christian? Is that what it means? We have to be careful how we define things. Now, in the Reformation times, you'll know that basically the king or the prince or the emperor of whatever nation either took a side whether they're going to be Roman Catholic or whether they're going to be Protestant. And all the subjects of our domain was going to be either what we believe, either Roman Catholic or Protestant, right? So what happened was, is you have a whole bunch of people now who once were Roman Catholic by name and now they're Protestant by name. So Germany once was Roman Catholic and then suddenly Germany was Protestant and if you're a German, you're a Protestant Christian. And we're going to teach you what the gospel is. And a group of people, as this spread, a group of people began to say, you know what, we have all sorts of people who profess to be Christians and they can say all the right doctrines because we've been teaching them their catechisms and they're not really Christians. They're not really born again. We can't give them assurance. Right? You can't give these people assurance. And I'm just going to focus on the Puritans. You've heard of the Puritans before? And the Puritans in England, this is what they saw. They saw all the English people. Now, the English people were Protestant. And they saw all these people, if you ask them, how do you get saved? They would know how to recite the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. But they're not really saved. There's something not right about this. It seems like they've just been indoctrinated. And so the Puritans came up with this doctrine that 
it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. Now, if you believe in Jesus, that's how you become a Christian. That's how you're saved. But to have assurance, you have to have a lifestyle that demonstrates that you're really a Christian. You get this? So it's not enough just to believe to have assurance. It's not enough just to recite the doctrine of the catechism to have assurance. To have assurance of salvation, you have to look at your life and say, am I living a holy life? Am I doing good deeds? Are my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds? This is how we distinguish who is a Christian and who isn't. So they wouldn't say the gospel is by works that you're saved, but how you know you're a Christian is by whether your life is looking a certain way. And this has been with us all the way through to the modern time. So this is the Puritan sort of modern doctrine of assurance that you'll find today. Now, if you go to many churches today and ask about the, the, uh, the, the topic of assurance of salvation, they'll probably tell you something like that. They'll say, if you believe in Christ, you're saved, but you only know you're saved if you've got works to back it up. And that created a real conflict. So, brothers and sisters, we believe that that's an error that comes from an error, from mixing church and state and, and not making a distinction between who is a Christian and who is an American or who is a German. And actually took away assurance. So it's a yes, but. You can have assurance, but it's based upon your works, which takes away assurance, created lots of conflict. How many of you have ever had that kind of conflict in your life? I know I believe the gospel. I mean, I believe the gospel. I get it. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me, and, I'm, and I just believe on him, and I'm saved. But I don't know if I'm really a Christian, because how could I do that if I'm a Christian, right? I sin, and you feel like suddenly you're not, you're not saved anymore. So that's the remnants of that sort of a doctrine. Now, what would John agree with? Who would John agree with of these three, do you think? The Roman Catholics? who say assurance is presumption. The reformers, who said assurance is absolutely yours as a Christian based upon simple faith because it's resting on God. Or with the Puritan and the modern interpretation, which is you can have assurance, but it's based upon not simple faith, but your life and your works. Who do you think John would agree with? Alan's got the peace sign. <laughs> Number two, the sign of peace, right? Number two, absolutely. John would agree with the reformers by saying, assurance is based upon simple faith in the gospel of Jesus. So the second point I like to make about assurance is this. Assurance of salvation is something that God wants you to have. Let's look at verse 19. What does John say? He says, hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. He wants us to be assured. He wants us to be assured that we're Christians and be assured that we're saved, be assured that we're forgiven, be assured that we're going to be, go to heaven when we die, that we have eternal life. If you flip over to John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John says, You know why I wrote this letter? I wrote unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. Now, I heard a very well-known modern-day preacher say this. He said, it's the preacher's job to take away people's assurance. He says, the problem is, is people have assurance. What they need is they need that assurance to be taken away. Remember, remember the quote from St. Augustine several weeks ago? He said, we should always be in a state of uncertainty about our soul because that'll keep us on our toes and alert. That'll propel us in our Christian life. Remember that? Augustine said that. Assurance is a bad thing because it'll make us complacent. We need no assurance. That'll keep us uh, zealous for God. So this is what this modern-day, very popular preacher has said. It's the preacher's job to take away people's assurance. What's funny, though, is in the exact same sermon that he said that, he said, if someone doesn't have assurance, they're listening to the devil. <laughs> they're listening to the devil if they don't have assurance. Right, he changed his tune halfway through. 
Now, John wrote this letter of 1 John so that we could be assured of our salvation. And unfortunately, 1 John's been a, been a battlefield of a debate, this letter, because the modern Puritan interpreters will look at 1 John and all they'll see in it is, yeah, John is telling us that it's not enough to believe. That all these things here, walking in the light, keeping the commandments, overcoming the world, loving the brethren, John is saying these are things that you have to do in your life. This is a lifestyle thing. This is action. This is obedience. This is good works. That's the way that you know you're assured. When rather, John is simply telling us in many different ways one thing. And that is, if you believe this message that we are bringing to you concerning the Son, Jesus Christ, then you have overcome the world. You are loving the brethren. You are walking in the light. You are keeping the commandments by simply believing this message that we're bringing unto you. What's the message? What is the message that the apostles tell us that's from the Father? What's that? It's good news, right? And who's it good news for? The righteous or the unrighteous? It's good news for you, the unrighteous, right? It's the good news of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God so loves the world. It's really the good news about who God is. Without the gospel, don't ever take this for granted. You don't know that God is a God of love. You don't know that God loves you. You don't know that God is gracious and merciful. Without the gospel, you don't really know. Only because of your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ do you know that God is like that prodigal son's father. That God is like the shepherd who went looking for that one sheep who went astray. All the things we sang about, who else can sing those songs that we sang this morning besides Christians? Who else? What other religion sings, and can it be that I should gain? Amazing love, how can it be? None. And it's because of the gospel. And if we lose the gospel, we can't sing those songs anymore. So mark that well. It's only the gospel that tells us who God is. John's audience are people that he's confident of. They are believers in Christ. He wants them to be assured. He wants them to know that they have eternal life because they're surrounded by Antichrist, it says in chapter 2. They're surrounded by Antichrist, people who are leaving uh, the fellowship of the saints, people who are speaking into the church, trying to corrupt their simple faith in Christ, trying to make it seem like God isn't really who God says he is through his son. And this is John's audience. Now, verse 19, look with me to verse 19 here. He says, hereby. What is the hereby? And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. What is John referring to? What he's just said, obviously, right? But is it just the immediate thing he's just said? I believe that he's referring to verse 10. And I believe that verse 11 to verse 18 is actually a slight little detour and an explanation of loving the brethren. So in verse 10 he says, In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whoever does not righteousness is not of God, which we understand to be believing the gospel. When you believe the gospel, you've done righteousness. And if you don't believe the gospel, have you done righteousness? No. Neither he that loves not his brother. And then in verse 11, all the way through verse 18, he takes a little time to explain what loving the brethren is. But I believe in verse 19, he says, Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. He's referring to verse 10. Now verse 10 gives us two things. Loving the brethren and believing. And these are the two things to John that are how you know you're a Christian. And they're not side by side. Don't get the impression that these two things are two separate things. Side by side, take an inventory. But rather, it's one thing inside another to John. If you believe the gospel, what comes along with that automatically is a love for the brethren. 
Did you know that your love for the brethren is one of the greatest evidences that you're a Christian? If you ever have a day when you wake up in the morning and you go, I don't know if I'm really a Christian or not. I'm uncertain about it. Well, there's two things you can look at. You can ask yourself, do I believe the gospel? Do I have a conviction about that? Am I trusting in what God has done for me on the cross? Or you can ask yourself, do I love the brethren? Because if you love the brethren, it's an evidence that you do believe the gospel. Because sometimes we're uncertain whether we believe or not. Because the devil plays tricks with our mind. I don't think he can play any trick with this one on loving the brethren. Loving the brethren is within faith. If you love the brethren, it's an indication that you have faith. So just ask yourself, do I love the brethren? Do I, if, if a Christian were to sit down at the table and to say, I'm a Christian, I believe that I'm a sinner and that Christ died for me and that I'm going to heaven because of his grace and not because I'm a good person. Does that person, do you have a connection with that person? Or do you despise them for that? If you despise them for that, if that thought disgusts you, and you would not want to sit at that table with that person on account of what he just said, then you're not a Christian. You are like Cain, as he says here in chapter 3, verse 12. But if that thought excites you and you go, oh, I'm glad to meet another person like that, then according to John, you love the brethren and you can know that you have eternal life. It's a simple indication that you're a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? I don't think the devil can fool with you with that one. It's a proof that you believe. Because you would not have that love unless you believed. Do you understand? Does that make sense? If you've missed the past sermons, maybe it doesn't make much sense. But These two things, not side by side, but one inside the other. Not sinlessness, as John talking about here in verse 19. He says, hereby we shall know that we're of the truth. Well, in John chapter 1, he says, if anyone says he doesn't have any sin, then he's not of the truth. So John's not talking about sinlessness here. Often we struggle with assurance because we sin. Now, the Puritan modern interpretation would actually encourage you to struggle with assurance if you sin. But being of the truth doesn't mean sinlessness. Being of the truth means you're of the gospel and you're believing that doesn't mean you're sinless. It means you're acknowledging you're a sinner for whom Christ Jesus died. And you shall assure your heart in this way. The word assure means to persuade as if your heart was a judge, as if your heart was judging yourself, taking an inventory or examining. And you persuade your heart with these proofs. Another way, another way that word can be taken is you pacify. You pacify your heart. Your heart, does your heart ever need pacification? <laughs> You'll persuade and pacify your heart. It's the cure for the common heart problem. And it's also, it says here in verse 19, you'll assure your heart before him. Because that's the one that we are worried about, right? whether God accepts me. You can come to church and uh, you can put on the show and everyone can accept you. But the real question is, before God, are you a Christian? Everyone needs to ask that question, right? Am I a Christian before God? Am I trusting in his son? On judgment day, because we all will die and we all will face God, will I be on judgment day assured that I am a child of God. And if you base that assurance upon your works, brothers and sisters, you will never be assured. You're going to approach judgment day with your knees quaking. There's no assurance when you base it on yourself, when you base it on the Son. Now, verse 20, look with me here. This is one of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible to interpret. This verse is called, in Latin, a crux interpretum, a crossroad of interpretation. That means 
There's two major divergent interpretations in this verse. Verse 20. And this morning, I'm just going to give you the two interpretations, and I'll let you do what you will with them. And hopefully they'll both be encouraging. The first way to interpret verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things, is the way that most of the older interpreters used to interpret this verse. And they would interpret it in this way. If your heart condemns you, then how much more will God condemn you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, if your heart says you're not a Christian, then God knows better than your heart. If you're suspicious, then God is suspicious more, or God knows all things, right? That's the way many older interpreters used to take this. So just think about that. The second way that this can be taken, which is taken by most modern interpreters, is that in verse 20, in the King James, it says, if our hearts condemn us, that the Greek can also read, whenever our hearts condemn us. You maybe have that in the NIV or in the New American Standard, perhaps the ESV or the Revised Standard. Whenever our hearts condemn us. So it, it would read like this. And hereby we know that we're of the truth and we shall pacify our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now the sense here is that whenever our hearts condemn us is whenever I'm feeling guilty, whenever I'm feeling like I'm condemned because of my sin, I'm going to assure myself and settle my heart's fear by remembering that it's because I believe in Christ and put my faith in Him that I'm saved. And God knows all things. I mean, He knows that I'm a sinner, but He also knows that I believe in His Son. This is actually very popular today because so many people are struggling with assurance because of this view that your lifestyle has to be a certain way in order for you to know you're saved. So when a Christian sins today... They think, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian because I'm not manifesting enough holiness. Well, every time my heart condemns me, God is greater and he knows that I believe in his son. So it's almost like they're retreating back to the Reformed view, but they're struggling with the Puritan view. They'll say, well, if we take the old interpreting view, how is that comforting? Isn't John trying to comfort the disturbed or is he trying to disturb... The comfort, the comforted. What's he doing? Right? This modern view also, they say, you know, John is saying that when you lack assurance, rest in the basis of your assurance, which is Christ. And then in verse 21, when we have assurance, beloved, if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence with God. Meaning, if I don't have assurance, I need to rest in what my assurance is based in, but when I do have assurance, then I get to experience the privileges of being assured. This is very um, a common view. Whenever our hearts condemn us, it's expected to happen. Guess what? You're going to feel condemnation, this, this view says. You're going to feel condemned every now and again. And don't we all experience that? Sometimes we feel condemnation. Condemnation has to do with sin. So why did the old guys say what they said? And the old guys said what they said because they believed that when a person put their faith in Christ, that they wouldn't, if they're believing, they wouldn't feel condemned when they sin. That was what motivated this interpretation. And it, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Because unfortunately, we only feel condemned when we sin because we're forgetting the gospel. And, I don't, and they say, John wouldn't be saying, you know, you're going to feel condemned when you sin. So, you know, just remember that God's better than that and greater than that. I think they're saying, no, no, John is actually exhorting us not to feel condemned when we sin. And if we do feel condemned, then maybe we're not believing. That's the old 
mindset. Okay? This is a difficult passage, isn't it? One thing that's helpful to see is that the word condemn here isn't actually the word condemn. So it's a little too strong. It's talking about if your heart... as a judge, gives you a negative verdict. It's not the word condemn, like in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, because condemnation has to do with sin. When I, feel, when I sin, I feel guilty and I'm going to be punished. Here he's talking about if your heart says you failed the test, your heart says you failed the test, God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. And what's the test? Do you believe in the gospel and do you love the brethren? If, if someone were sitting here who's not a Christian, and I were to say, do you believe the gospel? And they're like, not the way you're saying it. And I say, do you love those who are righteous through faith? And they're like, not really. Their heart is actually giving them a negative verdict. And then John would be saying, and God's, God knows better than you do, too, that you don't really believe, or that, that you don't really love the brethren. But if our hearts don't condemn us, if we can pass that test, and we can say, I do believe the gospel, and yeah, I, I don't hate the brethren for righteousness' sake. Hey, I can have confidence with God. So, it's the difference between thinking that John is talking about feeling condemned for your sin or failing the test of whether you believe and love. So I'll leave it there. That's a, that's a lot of complicated stuff right there. I'll let you decide what you think. I think both interpretations are perfectly valid. If you have, and I think, brothers and sisters, because of the history of doctrine on assurance, we do struggle with condemnation when we sin because we've been taught for so long that uh, you know, if you sin, maybe you're not a Christian. And sometimes we naturally feel that way too, right? So I think there's some real valid stuff there which says if you feel condemned for your sin, just know this, that God knows better than you, and that you do believe on his son. Okay? But at the same time, I want to encourage you, you don't need to feel condemned when you sin. If you pass the test of believing and loving, you have confidence with God. So let's look at verse 21. Oh, the third point I wanted to make about assurance is this. Assurance of salvation is a biblical truth that's been historically under siege. And the devil doesn't want you to have it. He's going to do everything to take it away. John wants you to know it's by simple faith in Christ and trusting in him and not yourself that you can have assurance. And uh, actually, that might have been my fourth point. The last point is this. Assurance of salvation is the key to the Christian life. Okay, mark that down. Assurance of salvation is the key to the Christian life. Look what it says in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence before God. If I have assurance that I'm a Christian, that's how I live towards God in confidence. I'm going to borrow a story from Nick. Nick shared a story with me recently. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing it. But he was fixing a car with a friend. And they were trying to take the wheel off the car. And the wheel wasn't coming off the car, so they started to kick at the wheel to try to kick the wheel off the car. And Nick kicked, unfortunately, down on the wheel and broke off the entire wheel uh, connector piece, whatever you call it, axle or something. Alan maybe knows. So he didn't just take the wheel off, but he took more than the wheel off when he kicked it. And at that point, Nick was really worried that maybe his friend was upset with him and that something was not right between them. And, and so... He approached his friend with trepidation, with his hand kind of quivering. Is everything okay? He didn't have confidence that he had the acceptance of his friend after that because he had sinned or because of that incident. But his friend was fine. Yeah, it's okay. What kind of a relationship would you have with a person if you don't have confidence towards them and you don't have an assurance of their love and of their acceptance and of your forgiveness with them? What kind of relationship can you even have with a person like that. Think about that. And I think this is important for you to think about it in your own personal relationships with your family members, your friends. Is there anyone in your life that you, you don't feel you have the assurance of their acceptance? Maybe you've done something and at this point they're not forgiving you. 
Is there anyone in your life that doesn't forgive you of something? Or is there anyone in your life that you're afraid won't forgive you if you were to mess up? How's that for living with them in relationship? Right? That's horrible. Because then you're always walking on eggshells, right? I don't want to mess up because I fear I'm going to be thrown out. John's saying, God wants you to have confidence with him. God wants you to be assured of his love. God wants you to not be that way that when you sin or throughout your day, you're just worried that if you sin, you're going to be kicked out. Or that there's more to Christianity than, simple, than the simple gospel. He sent his son so that you could have confidence through his son towards him. Isn't that wonderful and beautiful? That's the kind of God God is. He wants you to be totally open to come to him, totally free to come to him. And the word here actually is you have a boldness of speaking towards God. And the word confidence is actually a boldness of speaking. I mean, you're not afraid to talk to God. You're not afraid to approach God. You're not afraid to tell God your sins in fear of him kicking you out. And of course, there's many verses that come to mind um, with this. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. This beautiful passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16. <clears throat> this is the kind of assurance and this is the, this is the kind of confidence that assurance brings that God wants us to have. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And notice how it starts. Understanding this, or seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like us and was without sin. God understands you. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of the law. <laughs> the throne of grace. Isn't that beautiful that God's throne is here titled the throne of grace? That's the throne that he's sitting on. That's a righteous throne, by the way. It says in the Psalms that God's throne is righteousness and mercy. It's grace. Let us come before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's no sense of, oh, I can't pray today. I can't come to church today. I can't sing to God today. I can't fellowship with God today because I'm not right with him. Even though I'm believing in him, I'm doing something wrong. And it's, There's only one way to be right with God. That's through grace and through faith in his son. Amen? If you're believing in Jesus, can you come before God boldly with confidence? Amen. You can. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. I have a confession to make. Um, we preached through Ephesians a long time ago, right? But because we preached through Ephesians, I feel like I've been studying lots of other things, and I've kind of neglected Ephesians <laughs> for a while. I haven't really opened the book of Ephesians in a long time. I want to challenge us all to have a homework assignment. Read Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 this week. Okay? This is my homework assignment for everybody. Read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. When I turned to here, I was struck just by how gorgeous and beautiful this is. And I've kind of forgotten it. And what does the Bible say? Set your mind on things above. What are the things above? The heavenly things that Ephesians talks about, right? Just because we did a sermon series on it doesn't mean we should neglect it. The things above are so beautiful. I, feel, I wish I could just read the whole thing right now. But look at verse 12. Ephesians 3, verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Wow. Tom Grant. Boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Not by goodness, the goodness of you. Now, do you have that faith even when you sin? Absolutely. Can you come boldly? with confidence then? Absolutely. Isn't that a beautiful? Read, read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 this week. The Christian life is to be lived in assurance of our salvation and in confidence towards God. 
in that way, whatever we do has a good source. Okay? However you live your life has a good source. If you don't have assurance, then whatever you do isn't going to have a good source. Because you're going to be doing things out of fear. You're going to be doing things to try to get saved, to try to feel saved. Not because you know God has accepted you, but because you're trying to gain that acceptance. Only when you have that acceptance are you now free to live your life and to do things from a good source, from a place of rest, from a place of peace with God and thankfulness towards God, uncluttered by that worry of acceptance. Now you can choose to serve another person through love instead of through the desire to get accepted by God. Let's look at another scripture. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. We'll look at this one more and then we'll go back to 1 John. Isaiah 30 verse 15. Now in this chapter, God's talking to Israel who's not trusting in him. So at the end of this verse he says, but you guys, don't, you guys wouldn't do this. But we can still take this verse. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. Isn't that amazing? In just coming to me and resting you'll be saved. And in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. The strength of your life, the strength of your Christian walk is in your quiet confidence in God. Not your worrying and not your trying to get accepted, but just, just resting that he's accepted you because of what his son has done. You need, some Christ, you need some strength. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his grace. That means find strength in the gospel. Find strength not in your own, because you're doing well, therefore you can feel great about yourself. But have quietness and confidence in God. Or here's another verse. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? How do you have joy if you don't even believe you're saved? If you don't even believe you're accepted? You only have joy when you remember what he has done for you. And you have strength to live your life in that. Back to 1 John. There's an amazing privilege we have here to continue this thought of confidence towards God, boldness and access, boldness of speaking. John says this amazing thing which is just an echo of what Jesus said, okay? And I don't know about you guys, but I read this and it kind of goes over my head. But in verse 22, he says, whatever we ask and whatever we ask, we receive of him. That's, that does go over my head a bit. <laughs> now, John is not creating that idea. John is getting that from Jesus. And if you remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things like that, doesn't he? Whatever you ask in my name to the Father, he'll give it to you. Right? Now, how many of you feel like you understand that verse and it's just absolutely true in your life and you know, everything you ask for, God just answers? Terry does. That's good. That's good. I know I struggle with this verse to understand it. Let me just offer a few thoughts on it. It flows from verse 21. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence towards God and whatever we ask, we receive of him. Now, I, I ask God because I have confidence that I'm accepted of him and that he hears me and that he'll grant my request. If you don't believe that you've been accepted by God, how are you going to pray? If you don't have confidence to come, like, oh, I don't, I don't feel like I'm worthy enough or I don't feel like I'm good enough to pray and answer, get an answer to prayer, how are you going to get an answer to prayer, right? So the sense here is that because of our confidence in him, we can go to him in that confidence and we can pray in that confidence and we'll receive from him. 
The Bible says, we have not because we ask not, right? Remember that verse, we have not because we ask not? One of the reasons we ask not is because we don't have confidence, okay? We have not because we ask not. We ask not because we don't think he's going to answer anyway, because we don't think he wants to answer because we're not worthy and we're not really accepted and this, that, and the other. Is that not true? One of the reasons we don't ask is because we don't have confidence. Jesus, if you remember when he prayed before the Father, right before he called Lazarus from the dead, he said, I thank you, Father, that you always hear me. Remember that? You always hear me. Jesus had that confidence. The confidence that the Father always heard him and that he was the Father's son and that he could go to his Father to receive an answer to prayer. And I think, brothers and sisters, we, we often don't walk in that same kind of a confidence in prayer. Right? So this is a challenge for us in one sense. Brothers and sisters, have assurance, have boldness of speaking with God. Go to God in prayer, believing that he hears you. So it's a challenge for us. I know it's a challenge for me. If you turn to John 5, 1 John 5.14, John does add one thing to this. Because the other question is, well, does it really mean that he'll answer anything I ask if I have confidence towards him? So if I really believe that I'm his child and I'm accepted and I come to him, I'm really going to get anything that I ask for? So what happens if you ask for God to cease to be God? Would he answer that question? God, save me without Christ. Do it. Would he do that? No. You probably would never even ask that if you're coming to God on the basis of the Son anyway, right? He does say here in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have in him that we ask, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So there is one little thing he does say here, according to his will. So if you try to ask God something that's not according to God's will, then it won't be answered. But I think the sense of the verse is this. God will never withhold anything from us because we're unrighteous or unacceptable. If you ever go to God in prayer, God will never look at you and say, you're not, I'm not going to answer your prayer. No, you're not, you're not worthy to pray to me. You're not worthy to ask that to, of me. He sees you as his child. That's what you are. If you're born of him, you come to him and he doesn't withhold anything from you because you're unworthy. So banish that thought forever, brothers and sisters. I know we're plagued with it. Banish it. You come to him on the basis of his son. If he does say no, it's because it's in his wisdom. In conclusion, this passage here, we find the two things again. The thing within the thing, the keeping of the commandments of God are defined in verse 23 as believing on the name of the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another as he gave us commandment. That's the thing within the thing. Believe in love. So when you read keep the commandments in John, this is what you're to think about. Because he says, we keep the commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That is, we believe in the Son and we love the brethren. So we shouldn't think, keep the commandments. Well, I don't always obey the Ten Commandments. Oh, I must not be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. You'd never have any confidence if that's what you're thinking. Because he says in verse 24, he that keeps his commandments dwells in him and he in him. How can that be keeping the Ten Commandments or keeping the law or keeping commandments general if it's talking about dwelling in the Father and in the Son? If we took that old view, which said keeping the commandments is keeping the commandments in general, then that's basically the same as saying you've got to keep the commandments in order to be saved, which isn't the gospel. How do you dwell in him? How do you abide in Christ? How do you abide in God? Well, let's start from the top. 
How do you abide in the Father? By, by believing in the Son, right? By knowing the Son, you know the Father. By being in Christ, you're also in the Father. But how do you get in Christ? How do you abide in Christ? Is it by keeping the Ten Commandments? It's about believing the Gospel, right? When you believe on the Son, you're in Him, and thus in Him, the Father. Whoever has fellowship with the Son has fellowship with the Father also. And with each other who are also in the Son. Let's, let's see that we have fellowship with God and with one another in Christ. Should we separate from each other because we might disagree on a certain doctrinal point? God doesn't separate from you if you're believing in the Son. If you're believing the gospel, you might have some pretty bad theology and God doesn't separate from you. Why separate from another person if they have some bad theology, if they're believing in the Son? So it's very simple. 1 John, the letter of joyful assurance. What's it all about? Believing in the Son. And he says it over and over and over again in so many different ways, like a spiral, gaining new territory. And next week we're going to look at this last part of verse 24. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. And he goes on into chapter 4 to talk about the Spirit. He, he draws another spiral. He's bringing in more territory, but he's talking about the same thing. So, brothers and sisters, do you believe the gospel? That's the test, right? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the good news about the Son? Or, if you're having a hard time answering that one, do you love the brethren? Do you love those who are righteous by faith or do you hate those who are righteous by faith? That's the clue. If so, if you believe, assure your hearts, pacify your hearts before him and live in that amazing privilege of being a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have accepted us who believe and we thank you that you want us to know that we have eternal life. And I just pray that if there's anyone struggling with assurance, God, that you would just remind them of the simplicity of knowing how we are yours. Thank you for sending your son to save us from our sins through his atoning death. God, give us the understanding that we can come to you not on the basis of our worthiness, and we can have boldness to pray. Thank you that our relationship with you is the same quality as the relationship that your son has with you. Please give us a more robust vision of the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.